silence is painful. But there's something about singing. Shakespeare described it. Is it not strange that sheep's guts, guitar strings, should hail souls out of men's bodies? When we want to express our deepest longings, our fiercest joy, our most profound trust, we sing. I have been by many deathbeds and never once asked to quote from a sermon, but often asked to sing a hymn. Year of our Lord, 2016, Advent. Merry Christmas. This year, for Advent, we felt the call to go back to basics, and we are preaching a series called Beginnings, where we track the Jesus story from the Gospel of Luke. It's interesting that Luke's gospel begins with a singing priest. And the irony is that the song that he sings takes nine months of silence to prepare. So the question I want to ask with you this morning is what made Zechariah sing? Zechariah's story begins with Israel's story. He is a priest in Israel. We ask, what's happening in Israel at this time? And the answer, not much. In fact, I always like to point to the end of the Old Testament and remind us how awkward the ending of the Old Testament is. Here it is. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of his fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else... I will come and strike the land with a curse. The end of the book. Now it's rather cryptic, strange, perhaps even disturbing, unless there's a sequel in mind. It's interesting that the book mentions Elijah because you may remember the story of Elijah that he never actually died He was just lifted up from the earth. And many thought that the living fulfillment of this passage would start up again when Elijah would return from heaven and come to earth again. But when Malachi writes this, it has been 300 years and no Elijah sightings. And then there's this other gap of time from Malachi to the time that Luke writes. That's a 400-year span. We know something about a 400-year span. If you've ever visited Plymouth Rock, you know when the pilgrims landed, engraved on the rock is the year? 1620. 400 years. We're coming up on 400 years as at least inhabiting a, a space of land. 400 years, not a word from God, not an oracle, not a prophet, just silence. How are you with silence? You ever been out uh, to eat with someone, even a good friend, you're in the restaurant booth and there's even 20 seconds of silence? It's awkward. You ever been like in a small group here at church or a gathering and someone 
prays and you're, everyone else is supposed to pray and then there's this 30 second pause. Awkward, right? Have you ever been given the silent treatment by someone? I read of a married couple who was having a spat and uh, it, it ventured into the silent treatment area and the husband who was not naturally an early riser needed to get up at five the next morning to catch a flight to Chicago. So he leaves a note by his wife's alarm clock, please wake me up at 5 a.m. to catch my flight. He wakes up the next morning, it's eight in the morning. He's furious. He's about to break the silent treatment and go have a conversation with his wife when he notices a note on his alarm clock. Wake up, it's 5 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Husbands and wives are good. <laughs> you ever been given the silent treatment from God? When you have prayed and prayed and prayed about something that's wrong with your body and there's no healing and less hope and everything seems to be going in the wrong direction and not a word or a sign from God. Perhaps you've experienced that in your marriage relationship where you've prayed and prayed and prayed for change and growth and everything just keeps going the other direction. Where perhaps for a child to come back to the faith And all you hear is the loudest silence of God suffering. Silence. It's so hard because we tend to associate silence within activity. And that is a mistake. Paul reminds us of this when he writes in Galatians 4 about the birth of Jesus. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. I'm captured by that phrase, time had fully come, that clause. There's a lot packed into that, but mainly Paul's reminding us that just because there's silence does not mean there's inactivity. Because in that 400-year space between Malachi and Luke, well, let me tell you what's going on. In 365 BC, a man by the name of Alexander the Great is leading his army around the cradle of the Mediterranean and amassing the largest conquered landmass in the history of the world. And... Alexander's strategy in every city was to capture the government and initiate reforms that would perpetuate Greek culture as well as establish libraries in every town and city so that everyone could speak and understand the same language. Never before in history had there been such a large landmass speaking and hearing the same language. Wouldn't you know it that when the authors with the Holy Spirit's push began to write the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the original letters to the early church that established them, what language did they write in? You guessed it, Greek. In the silence, God is preparing the world for Christmas. During that 400-year period between Malachi and Luke, Greek, Greece wanes, 
and Rome rises. And Rome is known for two things. They were known for great government that established peaceful conditions for people living in peace, as well as great roads that would enable people to travel for the furthest reaches of the empire on good roads. That means that when the gospel of Jesus came, it traveled the entire Roman Empire in brief time. In fact, Paul writes before he dies that as far as he knows, the gospel has reached every province in Rome, the Roman Empire. In the silence, God is preparing the world for Christmas. And then we focus narrower on the nation of Israel. The king of Israel at that time was a scoundrel puppet king of Rome named Herod the Great. But the one thing that Herod could do was build buildings. And he built the great temple in Jerusalem. That's a mock-up of it. During Herod's ministry, his his, uh, stewardship, He rebuilt everything in Jerusalem such that when Jesus came on the scene in Jerusalem, the Jewish people were gathered, worshiping, and open to receiving or rejecting the ministry of Jesus Christ. You see, in the silence, God was preparing Israel for Christmas. Now, we come to the story of Zechariah. From Israel to Zechariah to a focal point and the 400 years of silence are about to be broken. Zechariah's story is this. He was one of 18,000, according to Josephus, 18,000 priests and Levites ministering in Israel at that time. Now the job of a priest in that time was a good job. Two weeks a year they were on duty and they had to live on the temple grounds and perform the priestly duties. That's almost as good as my job one day a week. It was a good gig. During this two weeks, he, out of thousands of priests who were on duty, was selected by lot to light the incense at the evening sacrifice at three o'clock in the afternoon on the Sabbath. This was a once in a lifetime opportunity. No, this was the greatest moment in Zechariah's life. He's about to perform his duty and an angel appears and the angel says, fear not. It seems, and we'll hear the next few weeks, angels always had to say that. Fear not, Zechariah. I have heard your prayer. Singular, not prayers, prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him John. What I find interesting there is that it's prayer. I have heard your prayer. Certainly Zechariah was a good priest and offered prayers for his nation, prayers for his people, all the priestly duties. I mean, a pastor's main work is praying for his people, her people. But this is a specific prayer, and it's no doubt about Zechariah and Elizabeth not being able to conceive a child. Certainly when Zechariah was young married, he was praying fervently day and night, as was Elizabeth, praying that they would conceive and have a child. Now that they're in advanced years, perhaps not praying it as much, it's probably impossible from their point of view. But it's interesting that the angels said that God has heard their prayer from 30 20, 10 years ago, God was listening. 
I have heard your prayer. Many of you know the pain and the sorrow with which Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. You see, in the ancient world, to be barren was a very difficult journey in two ways. First, for the woman, in the ancient world, you were perceived as physically defective if you couldn't have a child, and you were shunned. In fact, there were interpretations of the Jewish law that allowed a husband to divorce you if you were infertile. That is so wrong, but it was so real. And then for the couple, if you were unable to conceive a child, the culture perceived you as spiritually defective. There was an area of your life where you weren't obedient. That's why you can't have children. Fix that and you'll have a child. You can imagine the painful journey of shame and sorrow in that culture that Zechariah and Elizabeth walked. Some of you know that journey. Some of you walked into the room this morning with the sorrow of having lost the person who was most dear to you in your life, your husband or your wife, this year or years ago. You know the sorrow of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Some of you have walked in here in this room knowing that your body right now as we speak is breaking down. You have a, a, an ailment, a disease, something that's just breaking you apart and you have cried out to the Lord week after week, sometimes hour after hour and all you get is the silence of God. Some of you know that sorrow. Some of you know the sorrow of having a child wander off from the faith. Some of you even more know the sorrow of losing a child to death. I think the worst kind of loss that a parent can experience. Some of you know the pain and the sorrow like Zechariah and Elizabeth of not being able to conceive a child. And the hardest part is when we have to carry these sorrows when we're doing everything right, when we're pursuing God with all our heart, when we're obedient, when we're loving him. And yet it's nothing but silence and suffering. With you this morning, I stand here, I... I don't really have things I can say about that. Except to sit down next to you on the mourner's bench and share your tears and enter your suffering. But there's nothing I can say that can fix that. Your journey is God's journey, as is mine. The only thing we can do is grieve together. There's a song that I want to just share with you, especially those of you who are carrying the sorrow of Zechariah and Elizabeth this morning. It's by Andrew Peterson. I'm going to read the lyrics. We want to honor the suffering that's in the room this morning. After the service, after the benediction, we're going to play the song with the lyrics up. And any of you who are in the place of sorrow and suffering and in the season of silence... We invite you to stay. We're going to leave the room in silence, the Advent waiting. And you're welcome to sit and stay and hear this song. But for now, I just want you to take in the lyrics. Name of the song is called The Silence of God by Andrew Peterson. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart. 
when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross, then what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone. All his friends are sleeping and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not in the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. It's the greatest moment of Zechariah's life an angel appears and says, your prayer's been heard. Your wife's going to have a child, a son. You'll name him John. He will be a source of joy for you and for many. And Zechariah's response is, are you sure? He needs a sign. And so the angel introduces himself to Zechariah. I am Gabriel. Now, Zechariah, no doubt being a priest, as most priests in that day did, had the Old Testament memorized. He had Daniel, the book of Daniel memorized, which was the last time we heard from Gabriel when he was explaining the 70th week of Daniel. I am Gabriel. You want a sign? Here's your sign. Shut up. You are now in a nine-month timeout where you will be unable to hear or speak. It wasn't punishment. It was preparation for Zechariah to sing a song of faith from a story of doubt. You know, a uh, quick aside, there's many conversations in the Old and New Testaments I would pay money, the price of admission to hear. This would be one of them. Zechariah finishes his priestly duties. It's two weeks, he goes home, can't speak, can't hear. So he was writing a note to his wife, gives it to her. Who talked to you? I'm going to have a what? You want to go in the other room and do what? <laughs> I would pay money to hear that conversation. Elizabeth conceives. Nine months later, John the Baptist. In the silence, God was preparing Zechariah to do two things. Name a son and sing to 
a son. We don't have any idea the pressure that was on Zechariah and Elizabeth in the naming of this son. You, the story, you know, the, the community's there. They take on the eighth day to circumcise John the Baptist, and they name them at the circumcision. They name the child, the male child. And Elizabeth, they ask her, what's his name? And she says, John. And they're like, what? You know, in our culture, we feel slight pressure to name the son Junior or after a relative, and the daughter perhaps after a grandmother, slight pressure. In that culture, you didn't do anything else. You always named the son after the father or a grandfather, always. To do so was to dishonor them. So you can imagine the courage and the trust it took from this old couple to resist their family and their community and name the son John. And so they go to Zechariah. Elizabeth said, John, what's the child's name? John, which means God is gracious. Immediately, he's able to hear, he's able to speak, and he sings. And in a moment, we'll look at what he's singing. I just want to pull up for a moment and have us notice Zechariah. Do you know what Zechariah teaches us here? You are never too old to outgrow growing. You are never too old to stop growing. God came to Zechariah. He brought a risk, an adventure. Zechariah underestimated God. To underestimate God is a sin on the level of rebellion. Jesus' greatest frustration when he was with us was the lack of faith displayed by his followers. The angel came with an opportunity for Zechariah to grow, and what was revealed is that even when you're old and spiritually mature, there's always room for growth. So can I talk to the old people in the room? Now, old in that culture was probably 45 and older. So if you're 45 and older, I want to talk to you for a minute. Here's what I see happen. As people age, in our culture, they start to pull out of more and more things. They think, well, let the younger people step in. I've done my time. I don't have the energy that I used to have. So they start stepping out of church programs, start stepping out of leadership roles. And you know what? I can understand some of that. But what I see often happen is old people step completely out of everything and they're just sitting on the sidelines. Can I be Gabriel and speak a word of challenge to you? You of all people have the wisdom to know how to live through the silences of God. You've lived them. You've gone through seasons when you've suffered and when you haven't heard words from God in months and years and yet you've held on to your faith. The young folk need that from you. So what do I want you to do? Get specific. Okay, here it is. I want you old people in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s to stalk the young people in the hub. I am serious. I want you to watch them bring their little kids in, remembering how much effort it takes just to get everyone out of bed at the same time. 
and they've struggled to get their kids here, I want you to watch them and go up to them and say, you are doing a great job as a parent. Because all of us who are parents remember how hard parenting is and what it meant when someone we found out was watching us parent and would say, you're doing a good work. I mean, no compliment means more than that to a young parent. I want you to compliment them. And then, and here's the risk, I want you to invite them to your home for dinner because even 90-year-olds can cook. I want you to invite them to your home for dinner and get to know them and get to know their children so that you can pray for them. And even more, you can watch their kids so that the young couple can go out and work on their marriage. You know what you're doing when you do all of that? You're doing what Gabriel asked uh, Zechariah to do. Name a few more sons and daughters. I want you to adopt them. I want them to become your children. I want their children to become your grandchildren. I want you to have influence on their lives. Because you should never underestimate what God wants to do through your influence. So in the silence, God was preparing Zechariah to name a son, and in the silence, he was preparing Zechariah to sing to the son. This great song that Ben read earlier, I'm just going to mention the two metaphors that anchor it. The first is in that phrase, raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's an Old Testament metaphor, speaking of a horn of an ox. In the ancient world, the ox was the everything machine that everyone needed. It plowed your fields, it pulled your stones and your timbers. You got things done and things provided because of an ox strength. Jesus is the strength of salvation for us. He is the one who has control over all nature, nations, government, and history. It's Jesus. Everything points to Jesus, and Jesus is the point of everything. And he is always moving and working in our lives to push salvation in and through us, in and through us. He is our strength. I'm telling you, he's working in your life to push strength in and through us even when you eat pizza. Matt Woodley puts it this way. Jesus is the strength of our life. My friend Emilio owns a tiny pizzeria that makes the best New York pizza on Long Island. Emilio hates, quote unquote, organized religion. Above the stove where he sticks the orders, he also collects small newspaper clippings about flawed and fallen ministers. He calls it his rack of shame. Every time I come in for pizza, he leans over the counter, slides a few clippings onto the counter and whispers, hey, look at this. This padre walked off with $80,000. This pastor slept with three church members. This priest abused little boys for 20 years. Okay, do you get why I don't need your stinking church? A few months ago, fed up with this clergy bashing, I blurted out, what does this prove, Emilio? So priests and pastors do despicable things. What if I started a rack of shame for people in your profession and declared that I will never again eat pizza? Actually, over the next few weeks, I tried rummaging through newspapers looking for articles about pizza guys doing nasty things. (laughs) 
spitting in the bread dough or using cheap ragu instead of homemade sauce. But apparently, pizza guys live pretty clean lives. <laughs> After a month or two of bickering back and forth, I came to Emilio and said, I need to order two slices of cheese and I need to ask for your forgiveness. He bristled, shot back. Is this a joke? No, really, Emilio. I'm truly sorry for being a jerk and for arguing with you. And I want the cheese slices too. The truth is, ministers do screw up. We can be pretty decent people, but sometimes we're frauds and hypocrites, and sometimes I am a sham. Emilio immediately softened, and we've actually become friends. But I didn't say this as an evangelism strategy. I said it more because it's true, and it's the gospel. I love the line that summarizes the gospel this way. We are far more flawed than we'd ever dare admit, but we are much more loved than we'd ever dare imagined. I'm not sure why it's so hard to get this simple truth. I qualify for the cosmic rack of shame. But through God's infinite mercy, Jesus took my place on the rack so that I could go free. Emilio, my outraged, anti-clerical, unchurched, pizza-making friend, helped me see the gospel again. I guess he evangelized me. I guess I have to be more careful. Jesus keeps sneaking up on me. And he's sneaking up on you. Every moment of your existence, he is the horn of salvation. And he's secondly, the second metaphor that anchors Zechariah's song, the nine-month timeout when he had to think about Jesus, is this rising sun. It's later there in the song by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. It's never been used of God before until now. And it's speaking of what Jesus would do, become the only man who by his own power walks out of his own grave. And therefore, when darkness enters our lives, even the darkness of the shadow of death we'll get a wake-up call. We have resurrection joy. What makes a Christian Christian is the inability to quit hoping because we know that nothing that happens to us here, even if it's the worst, is the, not the last word. Even though we die, we live. Jesus is the power of our lives. And he's the beauty in our death because of the resurrection. I came across a story of a woman, her family who had to bury her husband and their father. When her husband, a very dedicated Christian, was dying, she and her grown children gathered around his bedside. Together they sang the hymns and songs of the church that had meant so much to all of them through the years. They sang for hours sometimes singing from a hymn book, sometimes remembering pieces of hymns from memory until it was late and they were tired. And one by one, they moved from singing to gentle, holy silence until only the woman was singing to her husband. After a while, she began to sing, what wondrous love is this, 
which concludes, and when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing and joyful be. And through eternity, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And through eternity, I'll sing on. As she was singing these words, her husband died. And she said that it was in that moment that he became part of the church triumphant. And he began to sing praises to God for all eternity. Waterstone Community Church, my sisters and my brothers, never equate silence with inactivity. Because even in the silence, God is preparing you to sing a song of faith about the power of Jesus and the beauty of his resurrection. And knowing those things, he will even redeem your silences. Let's pray together. I've written a prayer. I want to kind of just have us walk through it together. Do you believe God is able to step into your life with joy and blessing where there has been disgrace and disappointment? That's what Christmas really means for each of us. What Elizabeth said in verse 25 is true of each of us because God sent his son He's looked with favor on us to take away our disgrace among men. Do you believe that? We think, God, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know how hopeless my situation is. May we even from a story of doubt, be able to sing a song of faith with Zechariah. Jesus is the strength of my life. It does not depend on you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've been through. He knows how bleak it looks. He is the rising sun of mercy who went to the cross bearing every sorrow every sin and every wound. You are forgiven. All is resurrection. His promises are yes. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Let's stand and proclaim it now in song.